And just as I begin tonight, um, to as we as we move forward into our lecture this evening on uh, Martin Luther, let God be God. I'm going to ask if someone would be so kind as to fetch me a cold cup of water. I forgot mine. I can assure you, standing on the Bible, that you will not lose your reward uh, if you do so. So thank you very much. Let's, uh, let's bow in prayer just a moment as I, I lift this lecture before God tonight. Father, we thank you again for your Holy Spirit, who is the sanctifier of the faithful. And we open our hearts and minds to him this evening. And I pray, dear God, that as we as we consider the life of your faithful servant, Martin Luther. Lord God, that you'd be pleased to stir us in the deepest parts of our hearts, O God, and that you would challenge us to a life of faith and of obedience and of the purity of your most holy gospel. Lord, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't think that I can uh, overstate my affection for and my debt to Martin Luther. And as we, thank you very much, Jane. your reward is coming, just may not be in this life. Uh, I can't overstate my affection for Luther. And as we approach this weekend, this is Reformation weekend. This is Reformation Sunday Come up, coming up. Tomorrow is Reformation Sunday. And our own Tim Cook will be preaching tomorrow on Reformation Sunday and for those of you who have never seen me in my vestments, then tomorrow's the day. There's a little bit of irony there that on Reformation Sunday I choose to wear the vestments, but it's a great irony, and I'm, I'm looking forward to celebrating the gospel with you, because the Reformation is about the gospel, and I hope that we can see that tonight as we talk about Luther. Well, I've studied Luther in both of my graduate degrees, as many of you know, my my doctorate is in the uh, historical theology surrounding the Reformation. Um, and uh, I've grown to love him. I'm always going back to Luther. I do, admittedly, love to sweeten my tongue with a bit of Calvin. Uh, but Luther is more dear to me. And no one stirs my heart so much like Luther. And if there is any kind of via media in the Anglican church, and for those of you who are familiar with Anglicanism, you know what I mean. If there's any kind of Anglicanism or via media, it's between Geneva and Wittenberg that we find our sense of identity between these great, two great movements of the Reformation, between Luther and between Calvin. And, uh, and I hope to, to stir in you a deep affection for Luther if I, as I have found a, a deep affection for him myself. So what I want to do is to give you a, a, a brief overview of Luther's life Many of you will not know uh, Martin Luther. I, you know, um, just so you, you will know a little bit of, of me, uh, on my first son's first Halloween, I dressed him as Martin Luther. And uh, I, I consider it one of my great triumphs in married life. Uh, and uh, Luther was born in 1483. He was born in Eisleben, November 10th. And uh, his father and mother were not the most pleasant folk. His father was a stern man. There's been all kinds of psychologizing of Martin Luther in view of his father's austerity. His mother once whipped him so brutally that he bled. He bled blood, no less. Uh, he bled, and uh, so he had a very difficult upbringing. And his father wanted Luther to be a lawyer. His father had made a great deal of money and riches as in the mining industry. 
Um, and he wanted for his son a better life, and so he sent him to the University of Erfurt in the beginning of the 16th century. Erfurt is one of the oldest universities in, in Europe, 1397, and its faculty of law was very noble, so Luther going to Erfurt was going to uh, a place of great renown. And uh, he studied there in the faculty of law, fully determined to obey his father's uh, wishes, but then something happened. Something happened to Luther that made him seek admission to a monastery and to make a radical change in his life, no longer to be a lawyer, but to be a monk. Um, today, monks, I think, have a better life than they did in the 16th century. I think it's much more comfy to be a monk, at least in some uh, places in the world today. In Luther's day, to be a monk, and particularly the kind of monk that he wanted to be, was very serious business. What had happened uh, was that as a student at university, uh, two things happened around uh, 1505, slightly before in 1503 was a separate incident, but in 1505, Luther was traveling uh, around town and a lightning storm came upon him. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been caught in the thick uh, presence of a real genuine lightning storm, it's a terrifying thing. I recall being in Toronto, and in Toronto, the storms come off Lake Ontario, and if you're caught in the midst of one of those storms, they're so loud and so terrifying that car alarms will go off as the thunder breaks. And I remember running home, just running as lightning was flashing around me and the quake was unlike, we get these little, these little bangs in Kelowna, right? In Toronto, it's just boom, and it's terrifying. And Luther was caught in one of these storms and he was so terrified for his life and was so certain of imminent death that he cried out to Saint Anne. Saint Anne was the patron saint of minors, and his father being in the business that he was, Luther was well conversant with her. And he said, help me, Saint Anne, I will become a monk, if only you get me out of this predicament. Two years earlier, Luther had a dagger incident where a dagger went into his leg and he bled significantly, and he thought he was going to die then too. So perhaps, at this point, he felt that God's mark was upon him and that his life would be taken away. Well, Luther was a man of his word. <laughs> Many people will cry out to God in an extremity and then moments later will forget what they had said. Luther didn't forget at all. And this situation brought Luther into an acute awareness of the reality of his own soul before God. Luther had an acute consciousness that his soul needed saving. And so he entered the monastery in order to find right standing before God. He wanted to find acceptance before God so that his soul could be saved. Well, in the monastery and in the university of the time, Erfurt University was the bastion of a philosophy called nominalism. If you know uh, something, uh, there are some perhaps philosophy students here, you know that the nominalist has the only master that was famous for his razor. That's uh, William Ockham. William Ockham and Gabriel Beale, shortly before Luther's times. Well, these teachers, this school of thought, which was called the Via Moderna, they taught, among other things, that the human will was perfectly free and the soul, on the basis of its own powers, its own native abilities, could find 
perfect acceptance before God and could perfect perfect love for God. It was hard work. Don't get me wrong. It was hard work, they said. It was possible. As long as you did what was in you, as long as you put to work the gifts that God had given you, God would then crown your efforts with his grace and you would then become worthy of eternal life. That was the teaching that Luther steps into. Well, you can imagine a soul like Luther's sensitive, sensitive soul and sinful soul. Luther was a sinner like any of us. You can imagine how quickly he would doubt if he was indeed doing his uttermost. Any capitulation to sexual lust, any flare-up of the temper, one too many glasses of wine, or worse, when Luther began to think of all the things he could do or could have done that he didn't do, he began to be tormented by this thought, am I doing everything that lies in me to do? Because if not, then God's grace will not adorn what I am doing, and then I'll be damned. <laughs> and so to find this acceptance with God, Luther not only enters a monastery, but he, he enters the most tough kind of monastery he can find. You can imagine Luther flipping through the yellow pages, looking for monasteries and looking at all the qualifications of those monasteries. Toughest monastery available. We will make your life the most unhappy of all other monasteries. And Luther says, well, that's the monastery for me. And he enters a reformed congregation of the Eremitical Order of St. Augustine. This was incorporated by Innocent IV in 1243. It had over 2,000 chapters by the mid-15th century, very popular amongst people who thought they needed a kicking in order to get right with God. Luther enters into this monastery, and it means a very hard life. It means a very austere life, and the daily ritual of this monastery was designed to kill off the man's will. And so there were meager meals. It was coarse clothing. You've heard of hair shirts. You put on these itchy hair shirts so that whatever you do, we've had sweaters like that, some of us, given to us by a grandmother sometimes, but we've had these, these hair shirts that they, they, they chafe against you no matter what you do. Self-mortification by begging, keeping vigil during the night, not sleeping, extensive fasting. And the plain and Spartan rooms of these monasteries were bad enough, but not for Luther. He would go outside often in the dead of winter and he would force himself to sleep in the snow and in the freezing cold, almost at times to the point and the, the, the brink of death, desperately trying to get rid of him. I mean, he was a good monk as far as monks go. And so Luther, all these energies present, was ordained to the priesthood, not all monks were, ordained to the priesthood in April 1507. But even being a priest didn't give to Luther any special sense of nearness to God and acceptance with God, and he was haunted day and especially at night. Luther was haunted, and he called these hauntings anfechtungen, or in the Latin tentatio. He was afflicted 
by a sense of anxiety. We might today simply label them as panic disorders, but for Luther, they were deeply spiritual afflictions as he kept on trying to fulfill God's commandments. And he was told that he could do so if only he had the resolve to do them. If only Luther had the intention to keep them, he could do it. You can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. Rah, rah, rah was the message around, um, around him. But no matter how hard Luther tried, he kept on running into his inability and into his sin. And so Luther grew more and more despairing to the point he begins to write that he wished that he hadn't been born. Luther begins to despise existence and self, and there are moments that we read as the monks who were perfectly content with their situation at their, at their monastery, perfectly content about their business. They were heard to, 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 from Luther's cell, Luther crying out, oh my sin, oh my sin, oh my sin, he would cry out. And in the midst of all of this, Luther had a spiritual advisor in the monastery. He was the vicar general of the Augustinian order. His name was Johannes von Staupitz. And he saw Luther, and he saw a man of great promise, despite all of his spiritual torment. And two things were suggested to Luther. One was that he take a trip to Rome. Uh, a pilgrimage to Rome might help you, my son. And so Luther was sent to Rome. He was there for four weeks, and it made things worse. Luther saw in Rome externally all the things that he feared internally. In all the religious machinery of Rome, Luther saw his own heart sins writ large. The gravitational pull towards man's glory. The gravitational pull towards man's honor. And all of the hypocrisy and all of the unbelief. When he returned, Staupitz finally landed on that which would lead Luther out of this morass of despair. He said, Luther, you need to be a teacher. You need to teach theology. You need to study theology, Luther. And so Luther was appointed uh, to teach theology at the new University of Wittenberg. The University of Wittenberg is a relatively new university, 1502. <laughs> Sounds really new to us. And it was kind of an off-the-map university. It was headed up by Frederick the Wise. He was its patron, and he wanted to make it a, a university of class, a university of distinction. But no one really knew of this university. He was made a, a professor of biblical theology. Eventually, Luther becomes a doctor in theology in 1512, and with very few absences, Luther would spend his entire life, 30 years, delivering two lectures a week to Bible students, all the while being a priest at the church. And the Reformation happens in Europe between these lectures. Luther lectures on Genesis. We have these lectures today. They're wonderful reading. Luther lectures on the Psalms. Luther lectures on Galatians, his favorite of the epistles. He lectures on Hebrews. He goes through all these texts, and as he's working, just lecturing on the Bible, Luther has his theological breakthrough. 
He has the thing that delivers him from all this anxiety. Have I done enough? Am I moral enough? Am I virtuous enough? Am I good enough? The breakthrough comes. We refer to this as the tower experience. In the midst of all of his study, Luther understands that there's a great difference between the law of God and the gospel of God. In fact, Luther will later say that it's these two things, law and gospel, and knowing the difference between the two that makes the difference between a theologian. And if you're to be a theologian for real, or for reals, as we might say, if you're to be a true theologian of the cross, then we must understand what the law is in the Bible, and we must understand what the gospel is. And through reading the texts, Romans especially, and the Psalms, when Luther reads, deliver me in thy righteousness. Well, hitherto Luther had been nauseated by these terms. He says, I heard the word justice, I heard the word righteousness, and I became sick to my stomach. Because when I heard these things, I heard God against me. I heard God wanting to destroy me. But now he reads, deliver me in thy righteousness. And he reads in Romans, I'm to live by faith. And as he reads these things, he understands the difference between the law and the gospel. And he realizes as if in a moment that the law comes to us not so that we can perform it and justify ourselves, but the law comes rather to expose our sinfulness and our helplessness. Luther's favorite epistle again was the epistle to the Galatians. He called it my dear epistle. He says, I'm in wedlock to the epistle of Galatians. I wonder sometimes how many of us might say that of any book of the Bible. I'm married to Galatians, he said. It's my Katie von Bora. Um, I'm, I'm, that is, I'm chained <laughs> to, this, uh, to this book of the Bible. Well, in his commentary to Galatians, Luther says this. He says, the law has no right to tell me that I must be justified by it. The law has no right to tell me that I must be justified by it. It does have a right to tell me that I must love God and love my neighbor, but it has no right to tell me how I can be delivered from sin and from death and from hell. That is the gospel's business, says Luther. And so Luther comes strongly and powerfully to a vision of the pure gospel, which is this solus Christus. It is only Christ. It is just Christ in everything. And he realized that when the Bible speaks about the love of God, it's not so much about our love of God as it is about God's love for us in Christ. That when the Bible speaks about the work of God, it's not so much about our work for God, but God's work for us in Christ. In fact, he realized that the Bible speaks consistently of our utter helplessness and that God in Christ becomes our everything. He, come, he becomes for us our all. He becomes our wisdom. God in Christ becomes our righteousness. 
He becomes our growth and our sanctification. God himself becomes our full redemption, Luther realized. And this is the theological revelation that leads to that great and fateful moment, October 31st, 1517, when Luther finally challenges the machine. Luther challenges the institution, one man against the whole world, and he nails his 95 theses with that metaphorical resounding gong going throughout all Europe to the castle church in Wittenberg. Heather sent me a funny picture today, and I thought it was quite apropos. In the picture, Martin Luther is standing there at that church door in Wittenberg, hammer in hand. He's got this paper on the door. Priests have gathered around him. They're looking at him. He looks back at them, and he says, oh, no, the door is fine. I'm just fixing your theology, he says. <laughs> See, Luther called them out. Luther issues a challenge to get back to the biblical gospel, the real gospel where Jesus is everything. The real gospel, which is this, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus alone, Jesus Christ, as God's redemption for us, plus nothing equals everything. And so we read these in his theses, Thesis 62, the true treasure of the church. The true treasure of the church is not pope, it is not priest, it is not indulgence. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. That is where the treasure lies in the church, the treasure is the gospel. What happens if you lose the gospel in your church? You lose the treasure. Thesis 68, the grace of the church does not compare with the grace of God and the piety of the cross. In Thesis 37, every true Christian has part in all the benefits of Christ, and this is granted to him by God, even without the Pope. You see, this is the powder keg. This is the powder keg, and after this, everything explodes. It is arguably the most important historical event ever, at least in the modern age, to come upon uh, our Western civilization. And I am consistently amazed that our history uh, departments and faculties can, can uh, simply brush away the Reformation as an inconsequential event. It changes everything. It changes how we think about the church. It changes how we think about the individual. It changes how we think about the state. It affects everything, and it's a massive explosion. And Luther thought he was only having a debate with his priests. Little did he know that God was using little Luther to change the world for centuries to come. And there's many things I could say about Luther tonight. I'd love to teach a year-long course just on Luther alone, but what I thought I'd do is to leave you tonight with a few juicy morsels. I want to, uh, to whet your appetite for more of this gospel preacher. Luther is a, uh, he's a master of words. Luther, as an Augustinian, Luther read a lot of Augustine. Luther loved Augustine. Uh, he is shaped and forged by Augustine. And if you've ever read Augustine, 
You know what a, a witty turn of phrase Augustine had. And, and Luther's just like that. And even though he's a master of the retaliatory verbal sally, Swingley and Erasmus, he says, are nothing but wormy nuts that taste like crap in one's mouth, uh, he wrote. Or in the bondage of the will, as he's writing against Erasmus, and if you've not yet read the bondage of the will, I recommend it to you. He says to Erasmus, perhaps you want me to, be, to, perhaps you want me to die of unrelieved boredom while you keep on talking, he says. Even if Luther's a master of the theological insult, Luther is far better writing as a theologian and a spiritual master. I have two authors that I constantly go back to. Many authors that I read, two that I can't do without. One is C.S. Lewis. Just on my flight home yesterday, I, I, even though I've read it a number of times before, I rediscovered The Great Divorce and I was fixed. Normally I hate airports, uh, but I was just glued and fixed on being nourished, uh, I, which I think is the, the finest of all of uh, Lewis's texts, The Great Divorce. But Luther, I found Luther to be at the same time the most challenging to my soul and the most comforting. <laughs> he comes with a whip and he comes with the cooling cloth. He's been the most elevating and he's been to me the most humbling. Out of all the writers, Luther persuades me to be the most spiritual the most heavenly minded. And at the same time, Luther reminds me again and again that I am material, that I am physical, that I am bodily and human. In fact, if anyone keeps me from the snare of Gnosticism, and I grew up as a Pentecostal, so I'm naturally, I'm naturally uh, inclined to it. If anyone keeps me from the lure and the snare of Gnosticism, it's Luther. And so tonight I wanna give you a, a short sampling of what it's like to read Luther. And I've taken these little snippets from his devotional writings in the 42nd volume of his American edition. Uh, Luther says such things as these. Luther writes, there are some people who do not give our God and his saints any rest until he delivers them from trial. God is supposed to heal the leg of one, make another rich, and help a third in his legal affairs. He's supposed to do what they want, even if he has to extricate them from their trials at the expense of others. In that way, they remain lazy. They remain, in fact, runaway knights who want neither to be attacked nor to enter combat. This is why they will not be crowned. Or he says this, I do not ask to be relieved of trials, for that would be dreadful. But I do entreat God that he might not let me fall in the trial and sin against my neighbor or sin against God. Or Luther says this, why does God allow us to be assailed by sin? so that we may learn to know ourselves and to know God. To know ourselves is to learn that we are all capable of sinning and doing evil all the time. To know God is to learn that God's grace is stronger than all the creatures. Or he says things like this, the most 
pernicious trial is when people praise our words, when they praise our counsel, when they commend our deeds, when they honor us, and when they esteem us. Or he says, when you see untrained and incompetent bishops, priests, or monks, regard them as a horrible plague from God by means of which the Lord punishes you and us for not praying the Lord's prayer and for not asking for daily bread. If we would sincerely pray the Lord's prayer and ask for our daily bread, God would surely hear us and he would send us fine, capable, learned, spiritual leaders. We are at fault more than they. <laughs> or Luther says, the reason we are so little affected by the message of the gospel is that our hearts are not able to see how great is the shame and the misery of lying in sin that is being separated from God. Or finally, last but not least, and this is most characteristic of Luther's writings, this is what Christ is. Christ is nothing other than sheer life. He says, Luther was convinced, and let me pick up on this last point here, that the essence of Christianity is looking to Christ. And looking to Christ is the only way for us to let God be God. Whenever we fix our eyes on ourselves, says Luther, even if it's to wallow in our own sin, and feel sorry for ourselves and feel ashamed of ourselves, even then we cannot let God be God. To let God be God, says Luther, is to get our eyes off ourselves, to forget about ourselves, and to be fixed on the power of Jesus to save. And Luther brings us home, as we're thinking about the Reformation, Luther brings us really home with respect to the doctrine of election. Now election and God's choosing, this isn't a question for Luther if you've read his bondage of the will. They're biblical doctrines, but some people get discouraged. Some people get led astray by these deep and lofty thoughts and they worry. They look inside and they say, am I chosen? Am I predestined of God? Do I have the signs of being a chosen of God? And Luther's answer comes back again and again, and it's the essence of his Christian gospel. It's what he learned from Staupitz, not to navel-gaze, not to dig around in your liver or your gizzard or wherever it is to find signs of election, but rather to look at the wounds of Jesus, to fix your eyes on his suffering, to fix your eyes on his promise and his signs that he gives us. And so Luther writes this, gaze at the heavenly picture of Christ. He descended into hell, and for your sake he was forsaken by God, and he was one eternally damned. In that picture, your hell is defeated. 
and your uncertain election is made sure, if you concern yourself with that, and if you believe that it was done for you, you will surely be preserved in the same faith. Never, therefore, let this be erased from your vision. Seek yourself only in Christ and not in yourself, and you'll find yourself in him eternally. But the devil, says Luther, will come to you. The devil will come to you and he will whisper in your ear, do you really think God will receive you? Do you really think, with all of your unworthiness, that God will take you? Will not your unworthiness rob you of God's grace? And Luther responds, well, when he comes, and he came many times, sometimes into Luther's room, when the devil comes, you cross yourself, and do not let the devil's question of your unworthiness assail you. Just believe, Luther says, that God's words are true. God gives you nothing because of your worthiness, but out of sheer grace, God establishes you, you unworthy one, on the foundation of what? Of his word and his signs. God has promised in his word and he has given me a sure sign of his grace that Christ's life has overcome my death in his death. That his obedience has blotted out all of my sin and suffering that his love has destroyed my hell in his forsakenness. The sign, he says, and the promise of my salvation, it will not lie to me. The sign and the word will not deceive me because it is God who has made the promise. And it is God who has made the sign and he cannot lie, neither in word or indeed, many of you have seen me make the sign of the cross. You've seen it tonight during absolution, or you've seen me make the sign of the cross in the Lord's Supper or at other points of the service. This is an incantation, says Luther. It's not an incantation. It is affirmation. It is not a charm or an amulet, but it's an expression of faith. It is an affirmation of the power of Christ against sin, against death, against hell, against the devil. And the essence of faith, writes Luther, it's this, it's to believe the word, and it's to believe the sign, it's to put our hope in what God says, not in what we feel. You know, upraise hands as we worship is a sign, is it not? We come to worship and we raise our hands. Some of us who are milder, we do this. Some of us are braver, we do this. And then there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a meme out there somewhere about all the different strikes of pose and worship and what they mean. When we raise our hands, it's a good sign. It's a sign of my subjective and my exuberant response to God. But the sign of the cross is a better sign, says Luther, because it's not subjective. It's not about what I'm feeling, but it's about the objective truth that Christ has suffered in my place. He has become my sin. 
that I might become the righteousness of God, and we pin our hopes in the objective sign of the cross. So Luther says, I can say with Mary in firm faith, let it be to me according to your word that is your promise, and let it be to me according to your signs. Tomorrow we're going to come and we're going to gather around this table together, and we will see signs of bread, and we will see signs of wine. And these are the promise of God, God who cannot lie. I have become your salvation. My son has suffered for you. Don't worry about what you're feeling. Don't worry about who you belong to. Just believe the word of God, says Luther. And when you see that sign of the cross, you believe that Christ's cross conquers everything. Sin, failure, rebellion, death, which is coming for each and every one of us, and the devil. And would you let me close tonight with a word from Luther to everyone here tonight? As you consider your own life and yourself in this world, as you think about your path, and all of us to some degree or another are seeking satisfaction, even if we might say with Mick Jagger that I try and try and try and try, we're all looking for completeness. We're all looking for reality self-realization, wisdom, power of will. And your path to these things, it's not in you. It's not in your skill. It's not in your wisdom. It's not in your strength. It's not in how well you can serve God or find God. It's not in the syllogisms that you're able to make. It's not in these things. Because as Luther says, you are not the closest one to yourself. There is someone closer to you. There is someone closer than you are to your own self. You will have to let God be God, writes Luther. And you will have to grant that he knows more about you than you know about yourself. Luther, as an Augustinian, takes this from book three of Augustine's Confessions, where the great Augustine writes, interior intimo meo et superior sumo meo. But thou, O Lord, wert more inward to me than my most inward part, and thou wert higher than my highest. That is to say, O God, you are closer to me than I am to myself. And in turning away from God, humanity has turned away from itself. And this is why we have all this fragmentation. This is why we have all this alienation. This is why we have all this human confusion. We have turned away from ourselves. We thought we were so free. We thought we were being so free in being free from the idea of God but it's turned out to be our bondage. To be sure, says Luther, God gave you a free will, 
But why do you want to make it your own will? Why not let it remain free? If you do with it whatever you will, it is no longer a free will, but it's your own will. A free will does not want its own way, but looks to God's will alone for direction. And so Luther writes, when gold can be had free, it is a mistake to place a higher value on copper. <laughs> Do not be misled by its color and its sheen. And so in a world intoxicated with copper, that is intoxicated with its own seeming freedom, which is bondage and ignorance and alienation and fragmentation. Luther invites us to the gold of the gospel that is everlasting life and joy in the Lord. And so God grant all of us tonight the grace to respond to God's invitation for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, should not perish in alienation and in fragmentation and in confusion, but should receive and have everlasting life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.